Malachi chapter 1, our text this morning is verses 6 through 14, and follow along with me as I read that. Malachi 1, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says Yahweh of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of Yahweh is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says Yahweh of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says Yahweh of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says Yahweh of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. But you are profaning it, in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says Yahweh of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says Yahweh? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Familiarity breeds contempt. I imagine many of you can think back to a time, maybe when you were first saved, when Christianity was thrilling to you. You had come to grips with the reality and the depth of your own sin before a holy God. You had come to see and enjoy the unspeakable majesty of God's holiness. You knew that because the sinless Son of God had absorbed in Himself the full exercise of the wrath of God against your sin, this holy God had graciously forgiven you of your sin and granted you eternal life. And fellowship with Jesus in those early days was just so sweet. It was like he was your best friend in the world, didn't leave your side all day. You couldn't wait to carve out some time in your schedule where you could be alone with him, where you could read and meditate on his word, where you could pour out your heart to him in prayer. And coming to church to worship God and to fellowship with other believers was the highlight of your week. 
You couldn't wait to set aside time in your week where you gather together with the people of God and offer Him a sacrifice of worship as the gathered assembly. And evangelism seemed like everybody you came in contact with, you had to speak this wonderful message of grace and salvation to them that you had just experienced in your life. There are a few things more encouraging than a young believer's guided zeal for Christ. But after some time passes, you know how this goes, Bible reading and prayer and church attendance and evangelism, it all kind of becomes familiar. What was once such a joy, such a privilege, such a thrill in our own hearts starts to become boring, even burdensome, even wearisome. The Bible starts to look thicker and thicker, and the Bible reading plans always seem to have us in the consecration laws in Leviticus or in the genealogies of First Chronicles. Prayer is reduced to quick requests when something goes wrong, and praying for 10 minutes feels like an hour. Attending church just gets to be another appointment on the calendar that forces you to wake up early on Sunday. And if we're not careful, even listening to God's Word preached can become little more than an academic exercise. We stop experiencing these activities for what they are, glorious privileges for worship. And we just go through the motions in so many ways, familiarity, even with these most wonderful, delightful responsibilities, can breed contempt. And a similar thing was happening with the priests of Israel in the day of the prophet Malachi. We mentioned it last Sunday morning that Malachi had undertaken his prophetic ministry somewhere between the mid to late 400s B.C., about 100 years after Judah's return from exile in Babylon. And about 80 years before that, just 20 years after exile, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah spoke words of great promise and encouragement to God's regathered nation. Through Haggai, God commands Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And Ezra 3, 10 and 11 tells us that when the foundation was laid, everyone sang praises and gave thanks to God. But those who were old enough to remember Solomon's temple wept at the building of Zerubbabel's temple because it paled in comparison to the splendor and beauty of that glorious place that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. But God promises through Haggai that all the nations will come to the temple of Jerusalem with their wealth. He says, I will fill this house with glory, and the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And in Zechariah 8, God promises there's going to be such peace in Jerusalem that men and women will grow old and the streets of the city will be filled with children playing. Eventually, God says in Zechariah 8, 7, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. But like we said last time, by Malachi's day, it had been about 80 years since God had given those promises to Israel, and they saw no such messianic renovation. And so they began to wonder where God was, 
and when he was going to fulfill all these magnificent promises. And after years and years of waiting and hoping, the priests and the people became disillusioned. Sure, they still went about their religious business. They celebrated the feasts and they offered the sacrifices. But the monotony of the routine led them to become familiar and bored with the worship of God. Their hearts became hardened and the temple service became little more than going through the motions. In their case, familiarity did breed contempt. And so God sends Malachi to speak into these issues, to rebuke Israel for their unfaithfulness. And among all the sins for which Malachi will rebuke Israel, he spends almost two whole chapters from chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to chapter 2 and verse 9, indicting the priests for their worthless, corrupt worship practices. Now you say, okay, but what does that have to do with me? I mean, priests and temples and altars and animal sacrifices. The sacrificial system of Israel has been fulfilled in Christ, the perfect sacrifice. Well, yes, that's true. But the New Testament takes the Old Testament imagery of sacrificial worship, and it describes the Christian's entire life as a sacrificial offering of worship to God. Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual latresis, your spiritual service of worship. That's the language of priestly temple ministry. So Christians offer sacrifice, not animal sacrifice, but the living and holy sacrifice of our entire lives. Or the passage Ben read for us, Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that gives thanks to His name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So our praise and our thanksgiving, our deeds of love and generosity to others, all of these things are described as sacrifices, as if we were priests ministering in the holy place. 1 Peter 2.5 says we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house, a, a temple we are, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 1, Hebrews 13, 15, and 16, 1 Peter 2, 5, the Christian's entire life is priestly ministry. The way we live, the way we serve, the way we obey or disobey is like offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Hebrews 10, 19, and 20 tells us that Jesus' flesh was like the veil of the temple that separated Israel from God's presence in the holy place. And because we are united to Christ by faith, the text says we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So you see, as a kingdom of priests, Christians live every day in the holy place. 
We live every day in the very presence of holy God himself. In the old covenant nation, only the priests could go into the holy place and there was a barrier. There was the, the veil and then there was the outer court and the, the, this idea of God is separate from you. God is other than you. God is holy and you are common and profane and you need an intermediary to minister on your behalf. You can't come into the presence of God himself and the New Testament imagery is we're all priests in the holy place. And that is an amazing privilege. It's a marvelous display of grace. But it's also something that should strike a holy fear into our hearts. People died for failing to properly revere God while ministering in his holy place. And we're in the holy place every day. Before the face of God every moment. We are a kingdom of priests waiting eagerly for the coming of our Messiah to set up his kingdom on the earth and bring all of his promises to pass like the priests of Malachi's day, which means we have much to learn from faithless priests who grew tired of waiting for the coming Messiah and who let the years of waiting for the fulfillment of his promises lull them into apathy so that they became guilty of offering worthless worship. And as we consider God's word to Israel through Malachi this morning, I want to highlight three marks of worthless worship. Three characteristics of unworthy worship. And my hope is that we would remember that we Christians are a holy priesthood, a kingdom of priests in the new covenant, and that our entire lives are spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. And as we see these marks of worthless worship from the priests of Malachi's day, my hope is that we'll be able to detect the presence of worthless worship in our own lives, put it to death by the power of the Spirit, and worship God in spirit and truth in a manner that He is worthy of. That first mark of worthless worship is their self-righteous self-defense. Self-righteous self-defense. We see that immediately in verses 6 and 7. Yahweh says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? This is not a good faith request for information. Oh, Yahweh, how? How have we done this? No, this is bitter contentiousness. It is hypersensitive self-righteousness. And it characterizes the people's attitude throughout the whole book. We saw last week in chapter 1, verse 2, God declares his love for his people and their immediate response is, how have you loved us? Chapter 2, verse 13, God tells them he doesn't accept their offerings. And their response, verse 14, is, For what reason does the Lord not accept our offerings? What's wrong with them? 2.17, God says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, and they don't miss a beat. How have we wearied him? 
Chapter 3, verse 8, God says, you're robbing me. They say, how have we robbed you? Verse 13, your words have been arrogant against me. They say, what have we spoken against you? Throughout the whole book, their default response to God's rebuke is not the response of true worshipers. The sacrifices of God, David tells us in that precious passage of Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. But this is not humble and contrite submission. This is not the kind of self-examination and broken-hearted repentance that characterize those who know their own weakness, who desperately want to be rid of sin in their own lives. This is the response of those who trust in themselves to be righteous. These are the kind of people who are shocked to learn that they could be offering worship to God that he's not pleased with. This is a telltale sign of self-righteousness. When a self-righteous person is criticized about their worship practices, they take personal offense because their worship is about them. Now that could be correction about any area of our lives because all of our lives are worship. I'll talk about that in a moment. But let's consider just for a moment literal worship practices. What do you mean my hand flailing and dancing in the aisles is distracting to other worshipers? I mean, this is my way of worshiping God. Legalist. Fundamentalist. You know, I, I like the light show and the smoke machines, okay? It, it makes me feel comfortable. The music from heretical worship bands really makes me feel close to God. Yeah, I know they deny the Trinity or I know they're prosperity preachers, but they have some really great sounding theologically rich worship songs. Figure that one out. Why are you harshing my mellow? Who are you, the worship police? It's a little exaggerated, but I've heard things just like that. What do you mean I should? Oh, here's one that'll get ready. Here's. <laughs> what do you mean I should wait to be dismissed before I get up to leave the worship center? I stayed for the whole sermon. I got places to be. Back off. Wait a second. You're telling me don't clap? Worship isn't a performance? Are you serious? See, for these folks, worship isn't about God. Worship isn't about pleasing Him. It's not about worshiping Him according to His revealed Word. My worship is about my feelings, my comfort, my preferences, how it makes me feel close to God. That is the response of self-focused, self-centered, self-righteousness. A true worshiper hears a rebuke like this from God's spokesman, like the one that Malachi is giving. And he's genuinely concerned. I'm not saying you have to be captive to the conscience of every legalist with a pet peeve. But even if you don't automatically accept the criticism, the true worshiper listens to the reproof of wisdom. Because he wants his worship to be pure. He wants his worship to be acceptable to God. And if there's a chance that it's not, he wants to hear about it. You know, thank you so much for pointing that out to me. 
I know that probably wasn't easy for you to do. I really do want to be careful to worship God in the way that he's appointed, and so I appreciate your exhortation. I'm going to go to the Lord with that. That's the response of a humble worshiper. But when the self-righteous take personal offense when they're rebuked, they reveal that their religious activity is more about themselves than anything else. And given the historical context of Malachi, I think that's exactly what's going on here. What do you mean we've despised your name? How have we defiled your altar? Listen, we keep bringing the sacrifices. We keep this temple thing going. We're actually keeping our end of the bargain, God, right? The sacrifices are getting offered. Where are you? Where's the restoration you promised? Where's the glory of this temple that you promised? And as blasphemous and unthinkable as that sounds to us here, in a proper frame of heart, with the wickedness of such thoughts stripped down to their naked deformity, if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that those kinds of thoughts can creep into our hearts. I keep reading my Bible. I keep going to church. I keep going to Bible study. When is this spiritual growth and satisfying communion with Jesus thing going to kick in? You, know, you keep talking about meaningful discipleship relationships happening through Bible studies. Well, we just keep talking about work and sports. These priests figured they were righteous. They were doing what God wanted them to do, what he required of them. The sermons are getting preached. The songs are getting sung. But the righteous worshiper doesn't arrogantly defend himself when God criticizes. The righteous worshiper, always aware of his own weakness and proneness to wander, humbly and thankfully receives biblical correction wherever it comes from even if the delivery is bad, even if the person bringing it isn't as gentle or kind as you might like. The wise man wrings whatever truth he can out of any correction when it's brought to him. How are you doing with this? Really? If someone confronts you about your worship practices, which again is to say about any part of your life, since every part of your life is worship in the presence of God, in the holy place. When someone addresses you about your sin, what's your default reaction? Is it to immediately defend yourself, whether out loud or just in your heart? When other believers who love the Lord and who love you come to you and address something in your life for God's glory and for your benefit, what's your response? Is it like the priests? What? How is that sinful? No, 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 no. Don't be so legalistic. One example of this that I've continually emphasized is the importance of attending a midweek Bible study as an extension of your fellowship group. You know, we are thankful to God that our attendance is as high as it is, but one of the disadvantages of being a big church and even being a big fellowship group is that you can come to service and stare at the back of someone's head for an hour and leave, and nobody knows anything about you. But having a group of 15 to 30 people that are aware of both your weaknesses so they can serve you and your strengths so that you can serve others 
That is an essential part of being members of the body of Christ. You do little more than play church if you don't have that in some measure. And so having a qualified man or group of men caring for your souls as under-shepherds is the best way that these elders here at Grace Church know how to faithfully shepherd a flock as large as ours is. What's your response to hearing an exhortation like that? Hey, listen, I make it to church most of the time. Well, that's great, but nobody knows who you are. Nobody's involved in your life. You're not accountable to everyone. Listen, I read my Bible, okay? I pray. I even give. If that's your attitude, right, if your response to correction is to list off all your religious activity as a way of self-righteously defending yourself, it may be that your acts of worship are more about you than about giving God what he's worthy of. That's a call for all of us to do some self-examination. A second mark of worthless worship is empty formalism. Unworthy worship is marked by self-righteous self-defense, number one, and number two, by an empty formalism. Look at the end of verse six. How have we despised your name? You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that, you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? Then when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? And then he repeats the charge again in verse 13. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. Should I receive that from your hand? The Levitical law was clear. Acceptable sacrifices to Yahweh were to be blemishless, were to be without defect. Leviticus 22.19 says, For you to be accepted, it must be without defect. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. It must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to Yahweh. And that's what the priests were doing. The priests, whose responsibility it was to protect the holiness of Yahweh's sanctuary. And here they were offering the blind and the sick and the lame and the stolen. They offered God their worst rather than their best. They offered what would cost them the least. They didn't have a category for sacrifice. That was sacrifice. Who cares if the animals have stuff wrong with them? They're going to get burned anyway, right? And besides, the sacrifices are being offered. Smoke's going up. The people see it. The ritual is being performed. See, the whole task was nothing but an external duty, nothing but empty formalism. They were just going through the motions. If their hearts were in it, they would have gladly desired to give God the best of what they had to offer, even though they knew that wouldn't be enough for his holiness. But worshiping God according to the prescriptions of his own word was not their concern. What about us? We who are a holy priesthood, we who offer up spiritual sacrifices to God by our entire lives of worship, 
Well, if we take on a stock of our own lives, it's not long before we realize that we fail in just the same way the priests of Israel did. We don't give God what he's worthy of. So often, we don't give him our best. The spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer take a back seat to other things that seem more pressing. The tyranny of the urgent. We give God our leftovers, especially the leftovers of our time. We, we do our devotions in our spare time if we can squeeze them in at all. We seem to have plenty of time for entertainment, for social media, which of course can be lawful recreations, but only in their proper place. Only when we've properly prioritized our personal worship time of prayer and scripture and, and worship, right? We think of worship service as we come to church. This is corporate worship. Why do we call it corporate worship? Because there's such a thing as family worship and there's such a thing as private worship, personal worship. So when we when we, 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 we enjoy lawful recreations when first things are put first, when prayer and scripture reading have their priority, when church attendance and involvement in one another's lives, not just attending events, but involvement in one another's lives take precedence over these hobbies and tinkerings. God calls for our first fruits and not our leftovers. Yahweh tells the priests in chapter 1, verse 8, not even your governor would accept such sacrifices as payment of taxes. Like if you were to pay this animal as a tax, not even your governor would accept it. And I think that applies to us in a big way. We offer to God what we would never dream of offering our employers. We'd never think of going into work a few hours late on Monday morning because, you know, we just didn't get enough sleep the night before. But how many of you have skipped the early service or church altogether because Saturday was a late night. Not because you're not feeling well, not because, you know, legitimate reasons, but, you know, it was nice. We were spending time. I just let it go. 10.30 became 11, became 11.30, and, you know, maybe I'll just take the second service today. Maybe I'll just stay home and live stream. We wouldn't treat our jobs that way seminary students, college students, we wouldn't treat our schoolwork that way unless we wanted to pay all that tuition money to get F's. But God help us, we can treat Jesus that way. And then even when we get to church, we're not always fully here. We let the routine of the order of worship lull us into mindless ritual as if just being physically present is enough. But true worship, true acceptable sacrifices of worship to God it requires intentionality. It requires focus. Our hearts need to be engaged. We've sung some songs so many times that if we're not careful, our minds can begin to wander even as we're singing. Even as we're carrying a tune and vocalizing the proper words, we could be thinking about lunch or where we need to be after the service or how we're going to hip check somebody to get our seat in the worship center. Some days we're so tired that we long for congregational prayer time just so that we can lean forward, close our eyes, and rest as the pastor's praying. But our worship in prayer and our worship in song 
should have all of our hearts and all of our minds engaged. We should be singing from our souls as if we were in the presence of the Lord Jesus himself because we are. When a pastor is leading us in congregational prayer, we should be closely following along with his words, making his words our words as we call out to God in praise, in confession, in thanksgiving, and in supplication. Even in the special music and, and the instrumental music, which I, I confess was difficult for me to get used to when I first showed up to Grace Church, right? When the orchestra is playing the melody to I Sing the Mighty Power of God, it's not a concert where we get to sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. No, that's an opportunity to worship. Even though we're not singing along, and even though we can seem a bit passive in the matter, receptive, Right? Those times are opportunities to consciously worship God with gifts better than our own. To worship God for giving such wonderful talents and gifts to fallen human beings such that we can enjoy beautiful and pleasant music that reflects God's own nature. These musicians have been blessed beyond measure. They're using their talents in the greatest enterprise that one could engage in, the praise of Almighty God. They're giving expression to the adoration that ought to be in our hearts, but in a way that we could never do, simply because he's given them gifts he hasn't given us. I can't sing like Phil Webb or Grace Chung or John Martin, but I can thank God for using my brothers and sisters to express the love for God that's in my own heart but in a way that I could only look forward to doing in heaven with a glorified body. We can thank God for being the creator of beautiful music. We can rejoice in the gifts he gives to others. We can pray that he would receive the song being sung or played as an offering of worship from hearts satisfied and made glad by his grace. We can pray that he would be magnified by the reproduction of his own skill and wisdom in the images of his creatures. Malachi says the priests brought the blind for sacrifice how might that apply to us for us to bring the blind for sacrifice would mean to worship God in ignorance with the eyes of our spiritual understanding as it were shut and blinded to the revealed truth of God it happens when we fail to bring the truth of the scriptures to bear on our worship so that we innovate rather than worship God as he's prescribed one of the greatest sights you can see as a believer following along singing with his heart with his bible open thinking about which passage of scripture this song's truths remind him of so that he can as it were from his own hand give to him I'm speaking the only perfect words that there are back to the one who spoke them in praise of him we bring the blind when we bypass or disengage the mind in favor of emotionalism. When worship becomes more about how we feel than about what God deserves and, what who, and, and who he is and what he has accomplished among us and for us, what he requires from us in his word. What about the sick? We bring the sick for sacrifice when we're cold or dull or lifeless in our worship. Our minds may be engaged, but we don't make heart work of it. We go through the motions. We stand when we're supposed to stand. We sit when we're supposed to sit. 
We sing when we were supposed to sing. We quiet down when we're led in prayer and when we're listening to a sermon, all while leaving the heart unengaged. Thomas Watson said, The devil does not care how many sermon pills you take, so long as they do not work upon your conscience. And Jesus indicts those who worship him with their lips, but whose hearts are far from him. Matthew 15, 8 and 9, In vain do they worship me. We bring the lame for sacrifice when we allow our minds and hearts to be distracted with empty thoughts, letting our minds wander as we think about the schedule for next week or what needs to get done around the house or whatever. We bring what was taken by robbery when we borrow the convictions of others and we pretend that these lofty worship words describe our experience rather than pursuing that experience and, and saying, you know what, I could never write a hymn like, like Charles Wesley or Isaac Watts. I could never write a hymn like whoever it is that is your favorite hymn writer. But, but I can aspire in my heart to say such things, to express such worship. And though I couldn't say it that way, that's what I feel in my heart because I've been with the Lord and I'm on my face and I'm in his presence and the light of his countenance is not only blessing and delighting my soul, but it's revealing my sin and it's causing me to repent. Do you see how active Worship is. Temple worship. Worship in the Holy of Holies. Worship in the presence of God is. Our entire lives are sacrifices of worship, but the pinnacle of our worship comes on Sunday morning in the gathered assembly where we gather as the people of God together with our brothers and sisters where the Lord says he is enthroned on the praises of his people. And when that is happening, what sacrifices are you bringing to the temple? We are not to endure a sermon, though we apologize if our sermons are things to be endured. But what are, what's, what's our response as we sit? We are to make sure our minds are fully engaged so that we perceive the truth being proclaimed from God's word and are properly affected by it. So that as the truth of God penetrates our minds and then inflames our hearts, our hearts then overflow in genuine adoration and a pure worship of God that issues in a holy life. If we're not careful, all of our Bible reading and all of our church attendance and all of our fellowship activities can become little more than the empty formalism of the priests of Malachi's day. Little more than taking God's name in vain. See, the third commandment isn't about set using God's name as a curse word, though of course I think it applies to that. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain means you shall not say he's yours, take his name upon you, worship him in a way that is empty, that is vain, that is meaningless because there's no reality in the heart. What's God's response to this empty formalism? Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. God says, keep your offering. If you can't give me what's in your heart, I don't want what's in your hand. 
God gets so fed up with their shallow and casual approach to worship that he'd rather the temple be closed down. No worship is better than blasphemous worship. And if you would turn quickly to Isaiah chapter 1, where Isaiah makes this, God makes the same point through Isaiah to Israel in the days that King Uzziah died. Isaiah 1, starting in verse 11, God says to Israel, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. And in the same way he told the people of Isaiah's day that he took no pleasure in their sacrifices, he, he looks at the priests of Malachi, Malachi's day in, in Malachi 1.10 and he says, I have no pleasure in you. I have no pleasure in you. What a statement. Could you imagine hearing those words from Almighty God, from the judge of all the world? from the God who sees to the depths of your heart, the God who knows, who is sure to know you accurately as you truly are, looking at you with the piercing eye of omniscience and saying, I take no pleasure in you. That's an undoing thought. Woe is me, I am undone. What I want more than anything in the world is to delight the heart of my Savior and my God. I want the one that I love more than life itself to look upon me and see the fingerprints of his own grace. And I want him to be pleased with the work of my hands, not because it's my work, not because I've generated it out of my own ingenuity or effort, but because he's worked it in me and prepared the good work before me so that I can say with David, from your own hand I have given you. Lord, be pleased with what you have accomplished in me. And so I need to search my heart. I need to confess. I need to repent. I need to seek his grace so that I might offer him what he is worthy of. And friends, he is worth more than your leftovers. He's, he, he does not accept the lame and the blind and the sick and the half-hearted and the begrudging and the hypocrisy the hypocritical. My life is really great over here. Just, just, just don't look behind this door over here. What do you do? You determine to put to death by the Spirit of God any empty formalism that might be lingering in your life. Spend time in prayer this week and ask God to reveal where this might exist in your life, if anywhere. Praise God if it doesn't. Heed the warnings of your brothers and sisters that you've been being given. Heed the warnings of your pastors and Bible study shepherds that you've been being given and saying, no, 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 no. It's that, that's not what you think it is. Recognize that God speaks through these means through the elders he must, he's appointed through the leaders that God has put in your life and if you see anything say God bring it into the light it, stop me from covering it 
Give me strength to confess it. Expose this further. And then you go to work. You put it to death by the power of the Spirit of God and, and by the promises of the gospel, remembering the promises that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. A broken spirit and a contrite heart, oh Lord, you will not despise. <laughs> we can despise the work of his table, but he won't despise the work of his hands in genuine penitence. Commit yourself by his grace to worship him in spirit and truth. Not only is unworthy worship marked by self-righteous self-defense and by empty formalism, the third characteristic of worthless worship is contempt for the duty. Contempt for the duty. Take a look at verse 12. He repeats what he mentioned already in verse 7, then he adds to it. He says, you're profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it. That term, disdainfully sniff, as the NAS puts it, the ESV renders it snort. It translates the Hebrew word nafach. It means to sniff or snort with contempt. It's, you know, kind of like a 11 or 12-year-old child. Oh, 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 it's that snort sniff thing that's, you know. It's a child like, twisting, twi getting his arm twisted physically or figuratively to do something that they can't bear to do in voicing their disgust, right? All right, fine. Insolent, complaining, bitter contempt. But don't we say that more than we like to admit? Again, whether out loud or in our hearts. My, how tiresome the work of the Lord is. Getting to church before 9 a.m. after a long week can be tiresome. Going to Sunday school or fellowship group or Bible studies takes us away from the rest we think we need after the busyness and stress of the work week. How many times have you skipped your personal worship time so you could sleep just a little bit longer? Evangelism. I don't know that there's a greater satisfaction and joy than proclaiming the gospel to somebody who stands in need of eternal life. And yet how easy it is to be embarrassed and hesitant and fearful in that joyful duty. In all these things, church, fellowship, prayer, Bible reading, evangelism, these are wonderful privileges that we as the people of God enjoy. And yet there are days when we say to ourselves, my, how tiresome it is. And we disdainfully sniff at it, and roll our eyes. When we react that way, what do we communicate about a life of following Jesus? we communicate that a life of following Jesus is contemptible. We say with our actions what the priest said with theirs, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But as 1 John 5, 3 says, God's commandments are not burdensome. And as a kingdom of priests, people who minister to each other as the body of Christ and minister to the unbelieving world, Christians must communicate by our attitude, by our speech, and by our actions that the worship and service of the Lord is delightful. 
That's how we stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We say with David, Psalm 27, verse four, that the one thing I want is to behold the beauty of the Lord and to be about his ministry in his place. And then we live like that's true. And so we clean up the thing that is amiss in our life. We expose it, we throw light on it, we confess it, and we put it to death. And you say, that's inconvenient and it's uncomfortable and I like my idols. I know, me too. But we have to be pruned, we have to be sharpened, we have to be sanctified. Think about those metaphors, pruning, John 15, in order that you would bear fruit. What's that mean? Pieces of you gotta get cut off. Sharpening. As iron sharpens iron, so another man sharpens another. That's not a pleasant, dainty process, the sharpening of iron. That's a piece of durable metal or sharper than the durable metal, striking repeatedly the durable metal so that it would be sharper than it is. That's not pleasant in the flesh, but it's your good. It's your good. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. When we do that, when we allow that to happen in our lives, when we give up our idols, when we say, all right, I do confess, let's put it out in the open, let's, let's take aim at this, that communicates what? That Jesus is glorious, that Jesus is worth it, that to be employed in his service is so satisfying that so far from contempt for our duty, we delight in our duty. He's, he's just that enjoyable Seeing him on the path of obedience is that lovely. I can suffer the loss of everything else in this life, least of all my sins, so that alongside the Apostle Paul, I can say, Philippians 3.8, I've lost everything and it's gain to me because I, gave, I gain him. My, how tiresome it is. No, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Yahweh of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of Yahweh. Oh, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. Praise is becoming. So these are the characteristics of worthless worship. Self-righteous, self-defense, empty formalism, contempt for our duty and I hope seeing them in Israel's bad example will help you identify those marks of unworthy worship in your lives but once we find it and recognize it we need to get rid of it we need to put the deeds and attitudes of unworthy worship to death but in order to mortify it at its root and not just pick the fruit off the tree so it grows back but to lay the axe at the root of the tree we need to understand what causes worthless worship we've seen the characteristics three of them what is its source where does it come from? The source of worthless worship is a failure to properly esteem God's glory and honor his name. Notice that at the heart of Yahweh's rejection of the priest's sacrifices is his zeal for his own name. The end of verse 10. Nor will I accept an offering from you. Then verse 11, for. I won't accept this for because from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great 
among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that's pure for my name will be great among the nations. God's chief regard for his own name is why the sacrificial laws were as they were. Not just because God is some arbitrary, capricious narcissist, like I want every T crossed, every I dotted, you got to do this thing, do the entrails and burn the fat. And not because he's just like, I can do it, so I'm going to make you do it. It's because he's worthy of perfection. He's worthy of blemishlessness. God esteems his name and his glory above everything in the world, and therefore his people must esteem his name and his glory above everything in the world. He intends that his name will be magnified throughout all the earth and seen as glorious as it is, and for that very reason, you and I must worship him in purity. He demands to be treated in a way that matches, that is commensurate with his own character. And he's been saying this the whole time. Back at verse six, he says, if I'm a father, where is my honor? Kavod means glory, weight, gravity. He goes on to say that the priests despise his name. Despise is the term baza. It means to regard lightly. Just like Esau despised his birthright, he regarded it so lightly that he, he sold it to Jacob for a meal. He thought it a light thing. He says, I'm worthy of heaviness and you, you are despising me. You're, giving me. you're treating me light, insignificant. They didn't, Esau didn't perceive the weight of it. The priests didn't perceive the weight of what they were doing and who God was. They were despising their birthright of pure worship to Yahweh. Rather than regarding him as weighty and worthy of reverential awe and pure worship, they treated him as if he was insignificant and common. They didn't think twice about speaking to him flippantly, about offering unworthy sacrifices and about complaining about the duty of his temple service, which was a privilege that propitiated the wrath of God against their sins. Oh, this is so laborious, the way that God forgives us of all of our transgressions. I mean, that's just insanity. And in fact, God even identifies himself with his altar. He asserts in verse 11, his name will be great among the nations, but you, my people, and more than that, my priests, verse 12, you are profaning it. You are profaning what? My name. In that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled. So you're profaning my name by profaning my table. The way you feel about the worship of God is the way you feel about God. And so the way you treat the worship of God is the way that you treat God. And the way you treat God must be heavy, weighty, not contemptuous and light. It's God's name. It's God himself that the priests despise. And the same will be true for us, for good or for ill. People live out their theology. Your actions are shaped by what you really believe about God. You will always act in line with what you believe in that moment. And if a sober survey of your life, friend, tells you that you are engaging in unworthy worship, the answer is not to just grit your teeth, try harder, pray longer, read earlier in the day, attend church more often, whatever. No, the answer is to see God as great as he sees himself. It's to saturate the eyes of your heart with the vision of the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. The great Puritan John Flavel understood that. 
He put it this way. Is Christ set down at, on the right hand of the majesty in heaven? Oh, with what awful reverence we should approach him in the duties of his worship. Away with light and low thoughts of Christ. Away with formal, irreverent, and careless frames in praying, hearing, receiving, yea, in conferring and speaking of Christ. Away with all deadness and drowsiness in duties, for he is a great king with whom you have to do. Oh, that you did but know what a glorious Lord you worship and serve, who makes the very place of his feet glorious wherever he comes. You may be free, but not rude in his presence. Though he be your father, brother, friend, yet the distance between him and you is infinite. You see, if the source of worthless worship is regarding God's name too lightly, we need to cultivate our affections to love his name, to behold the beauty of his majesty, to treasure his glory. And he's actually worthy of that from us. This is where the war against sin must be waged, Grace Life. At the level of spiritual sight, at the level of regard for God's name. I'm not calling you to willpower religion. I'm not calling you to mere duty. I'm saying go to battle with your sin, fighting to get a more exalted view of God, fighting to cultivate a deeper appreciation for the honor of his name because that is the source of worthy worship. And of course, that glory is nowhere more wondrously displayed than in the cross of Jesus Christ. And friends, if there are any of you here today who have discerned that all your religious activity has amounted to nothing more than worthless worship. I invite you to look to the one who lived a life of worship that was perfectly consistent with the demands of the honor and holiness of God's name. I invite you to look to the Lamb of God who offered his body as the once for all sufficient sacrifice and who poured out his blood to satisfy the Father's wrath against unworthy worshipers and who rose again triumphant over death, powerful to forgive the sins of all who turn from their sin and who trust in him alone for righteousness before a holy God, who sees his own unworthy worship and trusts alone in the worthy worship of the Son of God who lived and died and rose again for sinners. Unbeliever, come to Jesus Christ this morning, the perfect worshiper. And to those of you who are in Christ, who recognize I am an imperfect worshiper. I am, I'm not an unbeliever, praise God, but I have not measured up to the standard of God's word. You are right. You have not measured up. But dear Christian, Christ has measured up. Jesus has met that awful, unapproachable standard for you in your place as your substitute. And I want you to draw strength from knowing that his perfect record of worshiping God in spirit and in truth with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength is credited to your account by virtue of your union with him by faith alone so that where the Father should see the filthiness and putrefaction of your unworthy worship, he looks upon you and, and sees the spotless robe of the perfect obedience of his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. 
Those who despair come for rest. Those hard-hearted, don't you dare use the great truth of imputed righteousness to think I don't have to practice righteousness. Don't comfort yourself with the promises of the gospel while making provision for the sins of the flesh. You're not saved by your works. You're not barred from heaven by your sin. You're accepted because of Christ's righteousness. But you can't continue in sin. You can't. You have to let go. Fight the battle for worthy worship in the strength that you have already been accepted by God for the sake of Christ, whose sacrifice of himself has pleased God once for all. And then fight to bring your practice in line with your position. Find strength from grace to live a life of worthy worship. Let's pray. Father, how, how, is, is it, how can we stand in the presence of such holiness? It was plain, it seems, to Israel that you don't come into this holy place not without the proper clothes, not without the proper vestments, not without the proper prayers spoken, not without the proper preparation, not without the death of a substitute and the blood that represented what was deserved to happen to sinners. And God, that we have come to the holy place through the flesh of Jesus, these things are no longer visible. We don't have the, the, the visible pictures, the, the rituals to go through day after day like they did that might impress upon our, our consciences, our minds, how serious this is. We have something more precious. We have the, the spiritual side of faith. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us permanently. We have the fulfillment of these things, we upon whom the ends of the ages have come. May it not be that we, simply because we can't see the shadows any longer, but have the substance, would be careless. Help us to see that we are, if anything, it's more severe to walk in, through the spiritual house of God, the holy temple that's building up, built of living stones, with unworthiness in our hearts. And Lord, we, we confess we're sinners. We, there's nothing that we can do that would ever appease your standard of perfect holiness. Every moment, our best offering of worship, our purest song of praise, our most earnest and contrite confession of sin has enough sin in it to destroy the entire world, to damn the entire human race and curse the earth. And so we need through him to offer our sacrifices of praise. He must sweeten every offering of worship for the defect that is in it. He must overcome what is lacking even in our best works. And so we pray that he would. Lord God, look at your son and not at us. Uh, look at us and then to your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for putting yourself in our way, in the way between justice and judgment and condemnation. 
give us grace that we would not despise that birthright and live as if it wasn't true. God, do heart work by your spirit even now. Loosen the grip of lusts and idols. Let the hearts of your people be free as you've purchased freedom for them. And make us holy, not for our sake, not to be eminent, not to put on phylacteries and displays of, of, of eminent holiness and grace, but that you might get what you're worthy of, what Jesus died to have, what the Spirit is oh so willing to put us into possession of. We pray that you would make us a holy people, a holy priesthood, and that we would offer sacrifices worthy to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.